This is The Politics Lab, a podcast that puts politics under a microscope. On this week's episode, Bill and Phil break down results from the New Hampshire primary, discuss concerns that North Korea may be preparing for war, check in on the doomsday clock, and then close by looking at Alabama's new method for the death penalty. Now let's go to the lab. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Politics Lab. My name is Bill Muck, and I'm a professor of political science at North Central College. And I'm joined by my colleague and best friend, Dr. Phil Barker, who's a professor of political science at Keene State College. Hey, Phil. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Two weeks in a row after we've had sort of spotty record. You know, we were taking some weeks off here, yeah. there, traveling. Two weeks. We're back in a good rhythm now. Cons- consistency. Yeah, that's if, if anybody, if we're known for anything, Bill, it's consistency. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as the weather gets worse and there's nothing to do, we're just going to keep podcasting. So, <laughs> oh. And other good news, we were just talking that Hunter Biden is getting paid like over a million, million and a half dollars for some of his artwork. Did you know that Hunter Biden was an artist and that he was so profitable in his art? This is really something. I, I did not. You sent me that article, and I I had not. Uh, I I had no idea that he was an artist, and, and it's normal for like unestablished novice yeah. artists to get paid millions of dollars for their work, right? Oh, definitely. I think that's I think that's why people go into art is that usually you make media. I mean, I will say they, the article uh, had some of his art. It wasn't bad. It was like you know, it wasn't. Yeah, I kind of yeah, liked I, it, but yeah, I liked it, but. Uh, Million and a half. And you said it was mostly from one guy. It was like 900,000 was for one guy who was like, I just really like Hunter's art. Oh, <laughs> poor Joe Biden. Because, I mean, I think Hunter Biden has yeah. issues, right? And and it just for makes sure. it hard for his dad. So, um, but we, maybe we should both go into art. Maybe there's more money in, th- in art than we anticipated. Yeah, people always told me that you couldn't make a living doing art, but that's Joe, you know, the Hunter Biden proved that wrong. So <laughs> your last name is Biden. You sure can. So. <laughs> I just changed my name. It'll be, it'll be no problem. That's right. So, well, we got we got a lot to talk about uh, today. We've, you know, we're, you're in the ground, the ground in New Hampshire. We can break down that. Uh, we're going to talk about doomsday clock, lots of things. But uh, before we dive in, you want to remind everybody how to stay connected? Yeah, lots of uplifting topics again, yes, as usual yes. this this week. So, yes. Uh, yeah, so so you can find us at thepoliticslab.com. And and as usual, we have all of our old episodes, episodes there, information on Bill and I, links to social media. But uh, the key, you know, you can tell that you and I are, are professors because <laughs> the, the reason I'm always, but the reason you should go there is for the <laughs> readings. Um, so, uh, yeah, we always have articles that are relevant to the things we talk about. And so uh, uh, if you go to the, thepoliticslab.com and click on this, week's episode. We've got articles on the New Hampshire primary, but um, yeah, we're going to talk about North Korea. There's a really interesting sort of analysis of, of what's been going on in North Korea. Um, an interesting piece in the Atlantic on this uh, Alabama death penalty case. So, th- so there's lots of stuff you can read um, and it's all on the webpage, politicslab.com. Thepoliticslab.com. I get so I say it so quick these days that the the disappears, but you do have to make sure that the is in there, thepoliticslab.com. We're like the Ohio State University. We're sticklers right. about the, you know, it's really <laughs> the right. Internet that's a stickler. <laughs> so, and, and I think politicslab.com was not available when we bought a domain. So <laughs> we're very creative. So, all right. Well, we are going to start with the big news out of New Hampshire. And how lucky are we to have one Dr. Phil Barker, an expert on the ground in New Hampshire, to help us break down these results? Uh, big picture, Donald Trump defeated Nikki Haley by 11 points, 54 to 43 percent. The Haley camp signal that they are not going to drop out of the campaign with the candidate herself declaring, quote, the race is far from over. Uh, Trump then took the stage and called Haley an imposter. And despite looking very angry that Haley hadn't dropped out, stated, quote, I don't get too angry. I get even. <laughs> that's, that's, that seems nice and appropriate campaign yeah, talk. It's a good, good political candidate rhetoric, yeah. <laughs> that's right. So the exit polls had some really interesting findings. Uh, fewer New Hampshire voters denied the results of the 2020 election. Only 51% uh, than did Iowa voters, which was all the way at 66%. But that still means 50% of New Hampshire voters still denied the results of the 2020 election. Uh, if we dive a little deeper into the data, some fascinating and troubling patterns emerge. Uh, of those voters who believe if Biden did not legitimately win the 2020 election, an overwhelming majority, nearly nine in 10, voted for Trump. Only 13% of Haley voters believe that Joe Biden did not legitimately win in 2020. That's sort of a really important contrast there. Also, when asked, quote, if Donald Trump were to be convicted of a crime, would you consider him fit to be president? 
88% of Trump voters said that Trump would be fit, whereas 83% of Haley voters said he would not be fit. Um, One of the biggest questions is whether last night's results are a sign that it is all over and whether we should coordinate King Trump right now. So, Phil, so much to, to work through and think through here. So what did you see? What are you seeing on the ground? And what were your reactions to last night's developments? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I found it really interesting. I, I was, I, I guess it ended up f- coming out a very much like the the polling had shown. Um, you know, the polls we talked about, I think last week, were kind of all over the place. Some of them had yeah. Haley and Trump sort of tied. Others had Trump winning by fifteen. It ended up being about ten points. Um, I, I mean, I, I think that I, I thought going into it, Haley needed to be within ten points to really kind of be in this, and she's a little bit further out than that. So, I mean, I, I don't know that it's terribly surprising. I mean from from the you know being on the ground this this year felt calmer i think because mm-hmm. you know 4 years ago we had you know dozens of candidates um in on the on the uh on the democratic side and so it, it felt a little quieter especially you know now it was it was basically a two person race by the time we got to yeah. uh, primary day so it felt a little kind of anticlimactic um but uh, you know, I, I don't know. My, my first temptation is to say, uh, you can't read too much into this, but then I'm going to turn around and tell you all the stuff you can read into this <laughs> yes, data. Good, so, good. Um, you know, I, I think really what, what we see, what I see when I look at what happened ye- uh, yesterday in New Hampshire is sort of what we've come to know about American politics for the last, you know, eight years, right? Which is, Um, There is this really deep divide that falls along not so much kind of partisan lines, but kind of these, you know, identity sort of social economic lines. Um, And, and, you know, you you and I were talking before, and we should dig into some of this um, exit poll day. Well, we can just start with that. I mean, you, you see that in. Uh, that I, I think this race, what what you can draw from these primary results is that this is a race about Trump, right? And I felt like that was the case four years ago, but it feels like even though Joe Biden is the incumbent, even though you know whatever that the Donald Trump is on the outside, this is still a race about Donald Trump and what you think about Donald Trump, and that I mean that comes down to that that stark difference. What what you have, it's not you know it's not the this is a causal arrow thing, right? It is if you believe that the election was legitimate, then you see Trump as someone who's trying to, you know, usurp democracy, overthrow democracy, and you're voting against him. It's not a vote for Nikki Haley, right? It's a vote against Donald Trump. And and if if you have bought into Trump's rhetoric that the whole system is rigged and, and the election was stolen, then you're fully on board with Trump. And so it feels like this divide was there, but it feels like we have kind of further sort of self-selected, right? It felt like after January 6th, there was this kind of question mark about how are we going to, you know, was this the end of Donald Trump? And we've talked about how Republicans who were initially critical have found their way back to him. And it feels like we have fully sorted now, right? And, and if, if, for whatever reason, either you believe Trump or you're frustrated with the Democratic Party or whatever, you've come around to this. The election was stolen. This is the party line that I'm on board with. And you see that play out. And, um, you know, what What was surprising to me is that the turnout was really high. I, it, reporting and stuff didn't seem like it, but reading about it afterwards, like the particularly in the Republican Party, the Republican Party primary, I think I read this morning was had the highest turnout um, ever. Even higher, more people voting in that Republican Party primary than voted in the Democratic primary um, four years ago. So it, it, it drew a lot of people. But when you watch the people, you know, the, the 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 news interviews of people coming out of the polls, it was I mean, what people were voting for was Trump, meaning they were voting on Trump. So people who were voting for Nikki Haley were coming out and not saying, boy, I love Nikki Haley. They were saying, I'm voting against Trump, right? Um, Even on the Democratic side, people who went in, we could talk a little bit about, there was a huge write-in Joe Biden campaign. A huge number of them would even say, like, you know, I'm not thrilled with Joe Biden, but this is about Trump, right? And so I feel like this is this election is it just indicates we're seeing already whatever you know 10 months out that this election is going to be about Trump even though he's not the incumbent even though Joe Biden is the incumbent and that's where I come back around to we can dig into this a little bit more you, we've talked before that I'm not too terribly panicked about the the 
unpopularity of Joe Biden at this point, because I think ultimately when people go vote in November, they're not going to be voting on Joe Biden. They're going to be voting on Trump. Right. And and I think there's just going to be so many people who don't love Joe Biden. Um, and maybe Joe Biden doesn't fire them up to go vote, but Donald Trump goes, fires them up to go vote. And I think what we know is that when people get fired up about Trump, there are more people who are fired up in opposition to Trump than fired up for yeah. Trump. But I, I, though, I mean, that's my that's sort of my initial yeah. thoughts as I look at this, 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 uh, the, you know, the initial data that we see. What, what jumped out at you? Well, yeah, I, I'll get to that. But that was interesting what you just said. And, and thinking about the opposition to Trump, even in New Hampshire, where it doesn't really I mean, it matters, but it doesn't really matter. The fact that so many showed up to vote against Trump is revealing. Now, most of them were not Republicans, right? I mean, it was more moderates, right. uh, yep. independents. That's also revealing. And in that way, well, I'll come back to this later. But yeah, it, it feels to me a little bit like 2012, right? Uh, where, you know, Obama's running for his second term. There isn't a lot of enthusiasm about Obama. It isn't until in the campaign that kind of Obama starts to get some momentum going. And and so I think yeah. that's maybe a reason for not freaking out about Joe Biden just yet. But, but to start back with New Hampshire, you know, this really was Haley's one shot, right? I mean, yeah. I, I think this was over months ago. I, I think all of this is really window dressing. But if, if Haley was going to make a stand, she had to win in New Hampshire because for all the reasons that you suggested and, and I think about in terms of the, the the electorate in New Hampshire, this was the one she could win. You know, independence, more moderate voters, less evangelical. This is the space. She's not going to see that in South Carolina. She's not going to see that throughout the South. Uh, most Republicans are, are not going to be as open to other candidates. So, you know, my fear for Nikki Haley is that it's it, this was her one chance and it's going to get much, much more difficult. She might get clobbered in South Carolina, the next one. You know, her home right. state. Her home state, yeah. Um, which polling suggests she's not doing nearly as well as she's doing um, or did was doing in New Hampshire. Right. So that sets up stuff really poorly, poorly for her. And it, to me, this feels and I've mentioned this previously. The Republican Party is not a conventional political party anymore. Um, right. it, it is a political movement backing and supporting Donald Trump. And th that was so very clear, you know, watching the primary, all these, the few people that were running against Donald Trump in New Hampshire now suddenly are showing up on stage with him. Ramaswamy, all of them, right? The, the full endorsements, Scott, all, you know, it is, it is the cult of Trump. And I think that's what we're seeing here. This isn't really a, a primary where the party is trying to determine, you know, you know who they want to vote for. They've determined that, uh, and and so it's it's performative, um, and I get why Haley and others are doing it because they're hoping that Donald Trump goes to jail or he dies or something else, right? But but that's it. The only way this goes in a different direction if somehow Trump leaves the stage, and I don't see that happening. And so it was interesting to kind of watch New Hampshire. But but again, if this if if, if anybody was going to defeat Trump, it was Haley in New Hampshire, and that didn't even happen. Well, I mean, that, that's the argument for New Hampshire. I mean, you know, we've we've talked about whether yeah. New Hampshire should be first in the nation and whatnot. But one of the arguments for New Hampshire, it's not about its diversity and all of that other stuff, but it's a relatively small state. So yeah. one of the things that's been beneficial in the past is that sort of long shot candidates have the money and the resources they can put in, they can invest. And, you know, this is what Nikki Haley did, right? She She put all of her focus and money into New Hampshire. And so Part of the reason she's so far behind in South Carolina and other places is that she hasn't campaigned there. She hasn't spent money on ads. She hasn't done any of that. And so, you know, the beauty is, you know, if we if we look at moving the primary elsewhere, it may be that a Nikki Haley never had a chance to get established at all. Right. It would have yeah. been Trump's from the beginning because he had more money and, and, and coverage and all of that. So this, you know, New Hampshire gives those long shots a chance. And so when you're given that chance and the, you know, even with independents and Democrats crossing over and voting in the Republican, you know, primary, all you can only get, you know, whatever she, you're still 11 points behind Trump. It does. It, it indicates like, I, I don't see how she goes on to a big state and competes. If she could have established that this was a, there sure. was a real, you know, that she was a real contender here, that maybe there was, there were enough people to solidify behind her. Then she gets more money and, and all of that. And it continues to, to snowball. But yeah, I, I, I'm with you. It, it does feel, uh, it feels like a, a, 
politically speaking, it feels like a done deal, right? Unless yeah. something dramatic happens, um, you know, unless Trump is incapacitated or I don't even know, I was going to say, or he ends up in prison. I, at this point, I feel like even if he ends up in prison, right, it's a done deal. Like it, it feels like that cult of personality is so strong, right? This is where it's not about the the norms or the the policies or whatever. When, when the majority, the vast, vast, what did you say, 88% or something like that, that, yeah. that even if he's in prison, like 90 <laughs> out of 10 of the voters are still, still willing fit. to say that he could be president. Like yeah. that's, you're, you know, there's no, that's, yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a cult of personality at that point. Right. It, it, it really feels like that. And, uh, and unlike 2016, where Trump was still trying to figure things out, was kind of clueless about, you know, how to run a campaign. Now they have, they've learned their lessons and the team around Trump is much more sophisticated. So they've got it set up where the delegates in these various States, right? So not new, not the Democratic New Hampshire, but the the other, you know, when when the Republicans for New Hampshire go into the convention, um, Trump has made sure that most of those people would vote for Trump, right? I mean, that they are right. they are loyal delegates, and there was some, you know, concern previously in those, you know, the previous primaries that they would show up and say, "We can't let this happen. We can't elect Donald Trump. You know, we're going to vote otherwise." But they they've made sure that that's the case for a lot of these states now in the Republican primary. If you win the primary, you get all of the delegates. Right. So so even if, you know, probably after Super Tuesday, if not before, he's going to have this wrapped up, even if there's a trial, even if he's found guilty, even if he's put in jail. It's likely that all of those state delegates are still going to vote him as the nominee. Right. So this is going to be a campaign of, of Trump versus Biden, no matter what the Republican Party wants to do. But they're going to want to do this because it's it's a cult of personality at this point. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the thing that's remarkably different, I think, from certainly 50 years ago, but even, yeah. you know, 15 years ago, right? Like the, the delegates were thinking about electability and winning elections and all of that. And and if if the nominee were in prison or on their yes, way to right. prison, there would have been the sort of negotiations to find who else might we, you know, could we swing this a different direction to have a chance of what? And yeah, I mean, when, when the delegates are chosen, because I mean, everything about Trump is about like pure loyalty, right? It is about, um, you know, whatever he says goes. And so that even, you know, we're at the point now where even if all signs point to him losing by 90 points in the election, I can't imagine that those, that delegates or the convention is going to change directions if he's won, if he's won the primaries at that point. So I'm curious, I want to pick your brain about this, because I think we've got a clear sense of the campaign that Joe Biden is going to run, right? He's going to argue that Trump is a threat to democracy, right? It's it's a, a similar campaign that he ran in 2020, that Trump is going to, you know, he's he's an existential threat to, to democracy, all of those things. We understand that well. I'm getting the sense coming out of the Trump campaign that this is going to be about immigration and it's going to be all about race. And so I'm curious, you've been probably watching ads nonstop. Was immigration, was race, I mean, were you seeing that in the ads, even in New Hampshire, which is so far away from the border, were they still running with those sort of themes? A hundred percent. The the ads were remarkable in in a way that was like in much darker. And these were not Trump ads, right? Trump did not spend a whole lot of money at the very end. He started spending money in the last like two weeks or so. You started seeing Trump ads um, when it became clear that Nikki Haley was sort of close. But in in the run up to it, whether it was the I mean, it's not that surprising with Vivek, but with Ron DeSantis, with, you know, Nikki Haley, right? Like to see Nikki Haley uh, running ads that were I mean, this really sort of dark, you know, immigrants you know, swarming the borders, they're going to, you know, kill us all that sort of uh, approach that, that Joe Biden is, you know, opening the borders. It, it was clear that that was the message that, that was resonating with, or that they thought was resonating with the base. So I, I think you're exactly right. I think that is what it's going to be about. And I, and I, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think that message plays, right. That yeah. is, that is a message that has won so many people over to Trump. It's, it is that kind of white nationalism sort of, uh, uh, you know, approach to things. But um, I still think like what wins you the Republican primary is not what wins you the the national right. election. Right. right. And so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, all of this, I still think points to, you know, Trump's going to steamroll his way to the nomination. But um, I, again, the fact that so many people, non-Republicans were were lining up to vote yeah. in the Republican primary says something about the uh, the sort of motivation against that that, that so many people have. 
Well, this is a, this is such an important point, and and I, I will say, like, I, I I won't be surprised if they cont- if he continues that immigration and racial theme, and I anticipate it's going to be darker than 2016, right? 2016, it was sort of build the wall, uh, which was yep. again dark and anti-immigrant, but not not as bad as I think what we're going to be seeing now. And as evidence of that, I mean, I think you were aware this last week, uh, Trump was calling Nikki Haley by her middle name, or actually incorrectly calling her middle name, like he made a nickname <laughs> up for her. But basically, yeah. you know, making clear to everybody that that her parents for, were from India, that she's not one of us. And I think that yep. that surprised me a little bit. We've seen him do that in the past. I mean, you know, the whole birther thing with Obama, uh, you know, he called Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz by was it Raphael or whatever his like his name is Cuban name. Like he does this to people. Uh, I was a little surprised that he felt comfortable to do it multiple times with Haley. And, and the messaging there is like she's not one of us. Right. Uh, yep. She's. She's brown, right? And I, I so my fear, and I, but I think they're going to do it is that it's going to be more immigration, more openly racial in terms of drawing those lines, um, and and even more sort of ugly than what we saw in 2016. Because you know, build the wall was sort of his cute line that he would throw out there, uh, but I, I imagine the the messaging will be very very different this time. Yeah, which is remarkable because it yeah. was not, but you know, it it was it was shocking, you know, the first go round, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the this is the you know the man who campaigned on you know all immigrants are rapists and that Africa is full yeah. of shithole countries and stuff, right? right? right. And, I, and I think you're right; it's it's going to be even, uh, you know, more so. And I, and I think this is where we see, you know, it, we've talked about like the divides in the Republican Party and, and divides in the Democratic Party, but right now we can talk about the divides in the Republican Party and and you see this contrast between. The, the sort of more traditional, you know, small government, free market approach to uh, conservative politics versus the, the new version of conservative politics, which is this, you know, sort of ethno-nationalism. Um, and it kind of was summed up in, to some extent, by the Nikki Haley versus Donald Trump thing. And the part that I found fascinating, and you, I think you and I were talking, I don't think I said this on the air, I think you and I were talking beforehand. When you look at the map, right? Yeah. Um, did I say this already? No, no, no. When no, you yeah. look at the map of the returns in New Hampshire, you can see it in that yeah. the 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 sort of uh, the more urban, New Hampshire is a very rural state. Like, you know, there aren't many many big cities, but you look at the cities in New Hampshire and they went overwhelmingly for Nikki Haley and the sort of rural areas went overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. And and New Hampshire is this really interesting place because it has this libertarian streak. There's lots of people in Southern New Hampshire where along the border with Massachusetts where people who there's a lot of conservatives there who have chosen, who work in Massachusetts, but have chosen to live in New Hampshire those those sort of bands went Nikki Haley, right? Like those kind of traditional uh, uh, Republican, small, you know, lower taxes yeah. sort of approach. But but I think what it also shows is that the 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 Trump version has become the dominant. Like they, it has captured the Republican Party. It, yeah. it is, I think, it has left those sort of small government traditional conservatives without a real home. Um, and that that's the question that we've talked about for yeah. years: is do they do they line up behind party ideology? or do they line up behind you know democracy and if you if you're um, I, oh go ahead yeah yeah no i think I, I just don't think we know the answer to that fully at this point no but it, but if you're the trump campaign you realize that there are you realize that you've, you're alienating some segments of the old party uh and moderates and independents so it's likely that those voices are going to push back against you so it means you've got to mobilize others and that's why i think the darker the more open racism, the more anti-immigrant yeah. views are the ones that they're going to see as mobilizing, right? Because they they realize that this is a, a dead-end strategy unless you can get a lot more people who are sort of militant extremists to the polls. And so that's why I think you have to be – he's going to have to be more open and ugly about this. So do you think that – do you think that works? I, I mean I guess in the sense of it, – it's not just about getting more of them to the polls. Yeah. It's also about – in my mind, the extent to which the rhetoric has been successful. So if, mm-hmm. to what extent are those more kind of moderate conservatives after listening for eight years to Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson and all of this other stuff, have they sort of, to what extent have they absorbed that? And so, you know, I, I my tendency is to look back at the 
the, you know, the last several elections and say, you know, every indication says Donald Trump does not have the support to win this. It will be ugly. It will be contested. But but Joe Biden, you know, has the and and I I think Joe Biden's rooting for this. Right. Like he and Trump are both talking about how this is set. It's going to be Trump versus Biden. Uh, but the thing that might change is, is like you said, that maybe more people show up. I feel like those, those diehards were there last time, right? Like, I mean, they, yeah. they were showing up to vote. So the question is, has the rhetoric been able to convince more people? Like has, has eight years of this dark messaging sort of brought some people around? And, and I, I don't know, I, you know, again, I don't, I don't know enough. It would be really interesting to look at some polling to figure out, I, I mean, we'll find out, I guess, in, in November. I, what I will say is that this strategy has been successful internationally. So we're seeing a number of countries, especially Europe, we could talk about Italy and elsewhere. But those wins have tended to be in parliamentary systems where you don't have to get to 50 percent. You got to get to like 30, 35 percent and then you form a coalition. I don't know if that works in a presidential system where Trump's got to get, you know, basically 50 percent plus one. I think it's a more difficult sell to get you know a wider swath of the of the public so I, I you know i think you're absolutely right it is it is it is a tougher job and trump has made it more difficult by shifting in that in that direction uh and again they're 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 aware of this which means you know again that means it's going to get ugly because that's that's the only real strategy trump can't come back uh to sort of moderate independence and say i'm really your guy you know i'm pro business they will try to do that but that's a tough sell when you've talked about deporting millions of people, right. building a border, you know, I mean, cutting yourself off from NATO, Massive all of these. In the, yeah. Exactly. Right. You know, seeking retribution, turning the DOJ against your political opponents. Like there's a segment of the country that's like, yes, I like that. Uh, but I don't know if I, I, I sure hope it's not 50 percent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are, are you I mean, do you feel like I feel like I've been uh, maybe naively confident that I, I shouldn't say confident, like I, I'm not panicked yet. I still feel like this is, you know, this is the election we're held today, I think. uh uh, well, it's not going to be held today, but after we go through the, yeah. the, the, the election process and there's going to be, you know, trials and all sorts of other stuff and people are paying attention, I still feel like Biden wins this. It's going to look, you know, like it did four years ago, not a runaway, but Biden's going to win it. Do you, are you more worried about it than me? No, no, I, I, th- I feel very much the same. I think you look at the math, you look at the strategies like this sets up for a Joe Biden win. But the only scary part about all of that is that assu- it's it's going to be close no matter what. Yeah. It still yeah. comes down to five or six states. And anytime it's that close, you introduce the the space for something wonky to happen. Right. Yeah, you know, true. the economy goes bad. There's another pandemic. Right. The American public is not always particularly thoughtful about these elections. So, what? so yeah, that's that's what concerns. <laughs> concerns me is that you could see yeah. something else intervening. But you're absolutely yeah. right. If things play out the way they look to play out, it's it's tough sledding for Trump because the states that he needs to win, you know, the Wisconsin's, the Pennsylvania, the Arizona, the closer we get to the election and the more people are paying attention, it's going to come down to just like it did in New Hampshire. You know, there's going to be some that are voting for Trump, but there's going to be a big contingent that are saying, like, I can't take this guy again. And Joe Biden yeah. may be old and sleepy and whatnot, but I don't want Trump. And I, so my, my right. guess is that's going to play out again. Yeah. Well, should we should we shift gears a little bit? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So while we have all been paying attention to New Hampshire and internationally to Gaza and Ukraine, two prominent North Korea experts have uh, recently argued that North Korea is preparing for war. This is just what we need, the, the outside yeah, right. the, the stuff you were just talking about. So, and, and not preparing in the way that it seems that North Korea is typically preparing for war. It feels like North Korea is always preparing mm-hmm. for war, but this is, this is different. So Robert Carlin and Siegfried Hecker, um, both well-respected North Korean experts argue that, and this is a quote from, from their, uh, their paper, the situation on the, on the Korean peninsula is more dangerous than it has been at any time since early June, 1950. So they're going back to the Korean war, right? This may sound overly dramatic, but 
But we believe that like his grandfather in 1950, Kim Jong-un has made a strategic decision to go to war. We do not know when or how Kim plans to pull the trigger, but the danger is already far beyond the routine warnings in Washington, Seoul, and Tokyo about Pyongyang's provocations. So they're, they're saying that it's, it's not just that they're preparing for, they're, they're saying that he has already made this decision, that, that they are going to go to war. So they point to increased military activity, like the testing of an under water nuclear drone, extensive shelling of waters off the coast of South Korea in recent weeks, as well as changing rhetoric from the North Korean state. For instance, North Korea said, quote, it no longer regarded the South as inhabited by fellow countrymen, but as a hostile state that it would subjugate through nuclear war. Um, so, you know, the people who, who follow this have, have, have pointed out the fact that both the U.S. and South Korea have elections this year also lines mm-hmm. up with how Korea has how North Korea has done things in the past that you go back and look at previous elections. This is this is when they've sort of uh, upped their their provo- provocative actions. Um, so there, there's also some evidence. I thought it was really interesting as I, as I read through some of this bill, there's some evidence that Kim Jong-un might be buying into the idea that the world has shifted. So we've talked a lot of, over the last six months or so about, uh, the, you know, the changing nature of global politics and are we unipolar or bipolar or multipolar and all of that. And, and, and there's some evidence that, that, uh, Kim Jong-un is also thinking that way, that, that he's grown frustrated with attempts to draw concessions from the West and that changes in, in China, the war in Ukraine and growing, a relationship with Russia, um, all might lead it to believe that we're no longer living in an American yeah. world and that, and that North Korea could sort of do more, um, and, and get away with more basically. So Bill, international relations scholars often argue that a rational North Korea would never launch a war with the South, knowing that they would be ultimately destroyed between, you know, between Japan and the U S and all these other alliances that it just makes no sense for them to do that. But, uh, we also know the past few years have shown us the limits of supposedly rational international actors. So, you know, how, how seriously do you take this threat? You and I are not North Korea scholars, but like, as you read this, like, what, what are your thoughts on all of this? Well, that, that was my reaction. Okay. So, cause you and I were sort of generalists, right? We, we study the international system, uh, but we're not specific experts in North Korea. Uh, but when you read experts and so th- these scholars, their job, like they don't, they don't talk about everything, right? They focus narrowly in on North Korea. They study North Korea over time. They're looking at signals like what is North Korea doing? Um, You know, when they say something different is happening and that we're seeing behavior that suggests a shift in thinking has occurred, that's when I start to wake up and say, huh, because like you, my initial thought is like North Korea is not not stupid enough to do this. They would lose the war. It would be a terrible idea. But but when experts are saying like, yeah, yeah, we get that. But they're still engaging in conduct that suggests like they've made this strategic decision. Then I start to say this is probably moved into the realm of possibilities. Um, And also, I think, you know, just like Russia, Ukraine, many of us before that war were saying like, this is a terrible idea. Putin should never do this. Right. This is they're going to isolate themselves. They're going to you know, ultimately lead to their removal from power. There's nothing smart. There's nothing rational about Russia invading Ukraine. And what did Russia do? It invaded Ukraine. Um, So there are times when leaders make this decision based on a different conception of rationality. And it's really hard for us to get inside the head of Kim Jong-un. But, but I will say, I'm I'm worried by this. I'm troubled by this. And I I think the United States and, and sort of foreign policy and, and defense communities are probably adjusting and thinking about, okay, if this, if this threat is going up, how do we counter it, both diplomatically, militarily? Like, is there something that we can do to, to make it clear to Kim Jong-un that there are massive, you know, defense consequences for this, right? So these these are sort of the thoughts that are occurring. I'm guessing at the state and, and defense levels. And but yeah, no, this that article made me worry and think more about this in a way than I normally do. Normally, I just think like North Korea throws a temper tantrum every couple of years. You know, you, you you pay a little attention to it. You have some diplomacy and you move on. But this feels like it's something different. How about you? How, how are you reading this? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I defer to experts large. I mean, these, the, the two people who wrote this are, are, are uh, well-respected. One has like a history in intelligence, right? Working yeah. for the state department and whatnot. And the other is, I think, a, a nuclear scientist. So, so, I mean, these are people who, who have long had a focus on North Korea, who, who, who are drawing these conclusions. So like you said, they're not, they're not casual, uh, um, observers and, and, uh, that, that should worry us. And, mm-hmm. and I, I do think, you know, you were talking about where 
used to North Korean temper tantrums. I, I think that's part of what is worrying is that I yeah. think there's a danger in that they regularly launch, you know, missiles into the Pacific. They regularly threaten, you know, and, and the more they do that, the more it becomes normalized. And so we sort of, you know, expect it or we uh, it's not even that we expect it. I think we. Um, uh, we, we sort of disregard it, right? Like we, we, um, when these things happen, we just dismiss it as this is North Korea being North Korea. And so, you know, we talk a lot in international relations about the importance of signaling and being credible and all of that. And, And there's a real danger as North Korea does this more and more, they sort of lose that credibility, but that can also lead them to the, the, the conclusion that they have to lash out more in order to sort of get their point across. And so, um, there's kind of a, I don't know, a potential sort of negative feedback cycle um, in that in that as well. And and then you mix in also like you mentioned this as well. North Korea is like one of the more one of the most sort of inscrutable societies. Like we don't we just don't know much about what goes on in North Korea or what goes on in the North Korean government. And so um, that makes it uh, I, I don't know. There's just sort of more risk involved in that as well. There's there's so many more opportunities for misperceptions that the Russia, the Putin example is a really good example because I think Putin is, we, we all see Putin as this, I don't know, a sinister, but calculating leader. Right. And, yeah. and somehow he calculated that this was a good decision. And I think it, it's easy to think about, you know, I, I've been teaching, I, I teach my intro international relations class pretty much every semester. And right away we talk about you know, rationality and how re- realists sort of disregard domestic politics. We're, we're just looking, all countries are looking for their own security yeah. and whatever. And, and I think for the most part, that's true. But, but Vladimir Putin is an example of when you look at Putin and it's his decision to invade Ukraine, you, you have to not just look at sort of international politics and what's reasonable for Russia. You have to think about what's happening domestically, right? And, and so Vladimir Putin is like, you know, needing to shore up his own power at home. You have to look at, um, you see with Vladimir Putin, like the the long history of grievance, right? So Vladimir Putin had, you know, 30 years of being pissed that, that uh, Russia had lost the Cold War and being, you know, resentful towards the West and NATO. And 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 you also have his worldview, right? This idea yeah. that uh, that Russia deserved this place of power and it had been. And so when you mix all of that together, that's a really toxic mix for <laughs> overcoming, quote unquote, rationality. And I think every one of those is present to make to a arguably an even greater degree in North Korea, right? Like talking about worldview and a need to prop up your own power and grievance and all of this other stuff. And so, you know, what didn't seem rational and I still think was not rational in Russia still happens because Putin is convinced that it is the right thing or the rational yeah. thing to do. And I think that is very much the possibility um, in in a place like like North Korea as well. And so it is just again. Um, I, I think it's it, it is something that uh, that seems um, unthinkable, but but I think you know again, um, even rationality doesn't explain hundred percent of actions. It helps us understand the broad sort of scope of international politics, and this is this is where it's important. This is where those intelligence, those individual experts are important to give context to things and help us understand why uh, something that doesn't seem to make sense to us might make sense to a Kim Jong Un. Well, that's such a good point, right? Because it's contextually defined rationalism, right? So there, you know, Kim Jong-un is isolated. Uh, It is not a strong regime in terms of like building ideas and different perspectives. Uh, You know, he, they... Whatever he thinks is a good idea, everybody else is going to echo that. Uh, and so this sort of enables extremism and ext- it enables bad thinking. Um, and it also, the status quo, you talked about the grievances that that uh, Putin had over 30 years. I'm guessing Kim Jong-un feels very similar, right? He's mm-hmm. always trying to change the status quo and it never changes. He's an isolated country, no economic development, no opportunities, no uh, no value in the international system. He's developed nuclear weapons and nobody has any more respect for him. So he may be willing to gamble on a big change, right? And so that may be part of his thinking, flawed thinking, dangerous thinking, uh, but it doesn't mean that he won't do that. And I think that's why it's useful to have these experts and start thinking about what are they doing? And then again, how do you counter that dangerous behavior? Yeah. And, and again, you can, you can argue that like if a leader is considering when they're thinking about rationality, the lives of their own citizens and the, you know, the prospects for their country and all of this other stuff, like, you know, Kim Jong-un, there's 
plenty of evidence that the lives of his citizens are not that, you know, not yeah. weighing heavily on him, um, that, you know, the, the future of his country is already bleak, right? Like you yeah. can get an argument, this idea that there's not a whole lot to lose. Yeah. I think one of the other aspects that's really fascinating about this and as it plays out, um, you know, hopefully it doesn't play out, but as this, as the North Korea situation moves forward, one of the interesting things I think is, um, it, it also sheds a little bit of light or it, it's kind of an interesting way of looking at or digging into this Russia, China dynamic, because I think yeah. this is an example of where, uh, you know, North Korea has, you know, important relationships with both of those countries. I think an increasingly important relationship with Russia, they've been selling shells, you know, uh, munitions to Russia in, in its war against Ukraine. Um, but there's a long standing relationship with China. There's there's an argument to be made that Russia would love to see this happen, right? I mean, a, a war that breaks out in in Korea, um, you know, further uh, uh, distracts the West. It, it's going to further uh, um, uh, dissipate like resources. It's going to make it's going to make Russia's life better. But there's also all sorts of indications that China wants none yeah, of this, right. right? So China doesn't want this to happen. And so seeing, I mean, this this is a potential issue that could potentially drive a wedge in this newly kind of developing Russia-China relationship as well. So it's really kind of this three-way relationship yeah. in some ways where Russia and China play into this as well. Um, and I would think that China would be likely to win out in that. But I also think about sort of the, I don't know, the the ability of, of Putin to sort of manipulate his way, the idea of Putin's more aggressive approach might be appealing to someone like Kim Jong-un. So it's it's really interesting to see how all of that, you know, it becomes this really complex, complicated picture that way as well. That's a really interesting way to think about it, that China-Russia dynamic. And also, uh, the you know, it puts additional responsibility on China, who is now emerging as a global hegemon, to regulate countries in their backyard. Uh, and can they manage North Korea or is Russia able to instigate and, and cause further instability? Because you're right, Russia benefits from global instability. They believe that is going to uh, you know help them in the long run. So, But China, not so much. So. This is great. This is actually a nice transition into our next topic. Should we talk about the doomsday clock? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're just getting darker with each topic as we go. Right. Yes. Yeah. We, we've got just, more bad news. Just wait news. till we get to the last one where we talk about the death penalty. <laughs> yes. It's a spiral. All right. So, so they have reset the time on the doomsday clock and it will remain the closest it has ever been to the symbolic hour of the apocalypse. Uh, the clock is uh, once again remain at 90 seconds to midnight for 2024. It was also at at 90 seconds for 2023. Uh, the clock, which has been used for seven decades, was created by the Bolton of Atomic Scientists in 1947 amid Cold War nuclear tensions and is seen as a universally recognized indicator of the world's vulnerability to global catastrophe caused by man-made technologies. That's what the group, how they describe their work. Uh, the group also pointed to the growth of wars in the Middle East, Ukraine, a spiraling climate crisis and the rise of artificial intelligence as among the gravest threats putting human existence under pressure. Uh, Phil, our listeners probably do not know that you've given up your Apple Watch and instead wear a doomsday <laughs> clock on a chain that hangs from your neck, very much like Flavor Flav. So, so what do you make of these latest developments that we remain 90 seconds to midnight? If I had a nickel for every time somebody compared me to Flavor Flav, <laughs> Flavor Flav. <laughs> flavor flav i think is how you said it as well so <laughs> oh. uh no, no i mean th my first thought is like I, I think if you could go back in time the the initial clock i feel like uh they would have been uh, uh it feels like every year we're like oh we're gonna go to 80 <laughs> seconds because it's like we've right. we've gotten so close to doomsday and somehow we keep pushing it closer every time it feels like they wish they had started at 2 a.m um and they would have had a little more like yeah. leeway but yeah this is this is not um I think, first of all, I, I think this is, you know, this is the doomsday clock is meant to to sort of send a message. And so it's not it's not about the doomsday clock. It's about what are they talking about? And yeah. I think they're 100 percent right to be talking about this. Right. As we talk about we just finished talking about North Korea. But, you know, this was originally, uh, you know, about nuclear weapons. But this idea of man-made technologies. Right. We live yeah. in a world where man-made technologies are becoming increasingly. It, it's not just nuclear weapons. Right. You, you compare 
2024 to, to 1947, right? And and we're talking about, uh, you know, man-made technologies. We're talking about climate change. And, and you and I have talked about, like, the solutions to climate yes. change, which are going to stress the system as well. Um, artificial intelligence, the advancement of other weapons, right? It's We, we do uh, – the focus on nuclear weapons. We should focus on nuclear weapons. I, we talked last week about genocide and how oftentimes mm-hmm. we lose focus on these other things because genocide is held up as this sort of ultimate crime when there are yeah. all these – really terrible crimes um, that should all uh, get attention as well. And I feel like nuclear weapons are a little bit that way as well, right? We're so focused on nuclear weapons that we're not thinking about all of these other things that, you know, we just went through the pandemic, right? The, the threats of pandemic disease and, and all of that. But I, I do find it really fascinating, their discussion of, of uh, AI, right? I mean, this is something that's come up over and over again, right? Whether it is, and it's not, I, I think it's not AI in the, you know, uh, the whatever, the Ultron robot that's going to come and kill us all sort of AI. Although I think that's, you know, I think there's increasing yeah. people who are worried about that. But it is, again, the use of, of artificial intelligence in weapons and in war and in all these other things that 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 we don't yet fully understand. We don't fully comprehend. A bit like nuclear weapons in 1947. We just don't fully understand or comprehend yeah. the ra- the ramifications, the impl- implications of of these new technologies. And, and I think, um, this idea that we, you know, uh, the, the core idea that we are the source of our own, you know, demise, unless we get our shit together feels yeah. like this is very much on, on, on cue. I, I think if anything, as we, you know, go into another round of, uh, you know, I, I feel like we've talked a lot about the last sort of 15 years as threats to democracy and the uh, democratic backsliding. And as we go into this, you know, there are reasons for hope. But as we go into this you know, next round of elections in the U.S. and around the world, I feel like that's very much, I, I, you know, I feel like if anything, they should have lessened the yeah. the it shouldn't it shouldn't have stayed the same as last year. It feels um, like we're, you know, every moment that goes by we're getting closer to a, yeah. to a, a breaking point on this stuff uh, but that's my uplifting take what what's your take on it bill <laughs> I, I completely agree with your thoughtful assessment um here's my problem I, I the clock is all screwed up Phil the guy I can't yeah. get past this these are scientists we're scientists right we believe in data yep. this clock is stuff is garbage all right I got let's go to the data Phil <laughs> so let me I went back through the history of the clock and so it begins in 1947 at seven minutes to midnight all right so, yeah, so that was their 40, mistake right there they they, right. they started too close already uh, right and so then they jumped in 49 it was three minutes 53 it's two minutes so they're getting really close and then in 1960 Right after the Cuban Missile Crisis, they're back to 12 minutes. Because we made it through the Cuban Missile Crisis, everything's okay now? (laughs) I I guess so. And the the partial test ban treaty came through. They're all over the place. 72, they're up to 12. Uh, In 1980, they're seven minutes to midnight. And then from 80 to 81, they go to four, basically because of Reagan, which that's not so bad. I mean, that makes some sense. But all right, so then in 1991, when we finally get out of the the Cold War, it jumps to 17 minutes. Well, that's a a huge jump, right? I get that. That's actually, I think they should have jumped further. Uh, But then by 98, they're back down to nine. Uh, by 2007, they're back. To, there's no methodology to this fill. They're just yep. jumping all over the place. For sure. And then, and then they get so close, right? Then they're like, well, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And now they're running out. They're, they're doing seconds. They don't know what to do. Right. Exactly. Right. right. You don't want, I mean, so they, you're right. This 2020, 2023 to 2024, things have gotten worse. There are more wars, more instability. And they're they're saying like, that's still 90 seconds. Still that real gets bad. me. Yeah. Oh, scientists need to be better with their clock metaphors, analogies, data points. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, I think they do good work, but I can't get past their, their sloppy clockwork. It's really disorganized. It's a- <laughs> I love this about you. No, you're exactly right. And this is me being, uh, you know, a, a, a self-centered uh, social scientist that makes me want to say this is what you get when you have nuclear scientists who are trying to to come up with measures of, of how bad the social world is. So, yeah, I mean, I, there are ways to do this, right? Like there are yes. people who do this professionally. I, 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 you know, you can go in and rate, you can, you can score how, you know, how close a, a society is to, to war or, you know, how mm-hmm. strong a democracy is there are lots of we we talk about vdem and the and you know yes. they, they have clear methodology things they go through and look for to score things and this yes this feels sort of emotional rather than than <laughs> right. methodological so so yes I, I i totally understand your point i i i think that again 
if you had methodology, if you had clear methodology that you could yeah. go through and say, this is, this is the, this is what we're measuring on. I think it would, I think it would be, there would be alarms going off, right? We're yeah. not in a good place. And I think we're moving towards a worse place, but yes, you're, you're right. You, you don't do yourself any favors by just at the end of the year, sitting around a table and saying, how do we feel? It feels a little bit worse. Let's go with 90 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> right. We're now down to seconds. Like, so if, if 2025 yeah. is a bad year, what do they go to 87 seconds? Like, you know, cause then your unit of analysis is all screwed up, Phil. It's right. bad. A unit of analysis. That's my grad school friend. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like this is, that's where there, there is something hyperbolic about it. You've, you've brought me around, Bill. There's something hyperbolic around about this, because if you're saying that, if you think about what else could happen short of doomsday, yeah. um, there's a whole lot that could happen and they've allowed, yes. they're, they're saying we're whatever, 99% of the way till doomsday. And you know, there's, you could have, you know, massive nuclear proliferation. There's all sorts of stuff that could happen that still is short of doomsday. Um, that would be bad. And they've left no room to, to sort of indicate that in their methods. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, applaud their work, but, you know, be, be better. <laughs> <This> is, <laughs> I, I'm glad I didn't know that that's where you're going on. This. This is, I'm sure this is what our listeners wanted was a, a methodological discussion, a methodological <laughs> right. critique of the doomsday clock. I well, thought you wanted to talk political substance. You just wanted to to critique the method. Well, that's where I wanted to start. But then, you know, because AI is a really interesting conversation, right? I think that's that's yep. thoughtful. And that's why you elevated the discourse. But then the more I got into this and I was looking at the numbers and it really frustrated me. So. It does feel sort of random. Like, yes, yeah. yes, you're right. So sorry for hijacking that, but I just had to get that out of my system. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Should we go? Let's go well, to the death penalty. All right. <laughs> so tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, the state of Alabama is set to execute Kenneth Eugene Smith, a man convicted of the 1988 murder for hire of Elizabeth Senate. Uh, what makes Smith's execution unique is the fact that Alabama tried to execute him in 2022 and failed. I, my understanding is they didn't get it done in time. They were trying to get veins and they couldn't do it in time and the warrant ran out. But it, it was one of three or four executions that year alone in the state of Alabama that were botched in, in some way. So as a result, um, the execution set for tomorrow, the second go at it, uh, is, is going to be carried out by nitrogen hypoxia in which Smith will breathe in nitrogen until it displaces enough oxygen in his lungs to kill him. So uh, apparently, again, this is, I'm not a chemist, I'm not a, a, I'm not a medical expert, but apparently nitrogen doesn't have any, it's not painful, it doesn't have any uh, you know, effects. Uh, basically, all it does is it, it replaces the oxygen in your lungs, so you, so you suffocate. Um, in a very American twist, uh, this method of execution was apparently first proposed by a screenwriter. The, the, I, the, I, this is the one part of the story that I just cannot wrap my head fully around. A, a guy who uh, a number of years ago proposed this. Um, uh, so he, he drew evidence from industrial disasters that had involved nitrogen and led to death. And, and drawing from that, supporters argue that nitrogen hypoxia quickly leads to unconsciousness and causes no pain and, and all this other stuff. So Critics, however, point out that there are lots of potential drawbacks, particularly if the process doesn't play out perfectly, including if the mask isn't perfectly sealed, it can cause potential danger to law enforcement officers and observers, as well as risks to the subject, including the potential for strokes and the possibility of leaving the leaving Smith in a vegetative state if it doesn't fully, fully work. So, uh, Bill, the, the United States is among a shrinking group of states that still s use the death penalty regularly. And it's clear that our legal system is having a hard time finding ways to execute prisoners that don't violate provisions against cruel and unusual punishment. So um, I, you're, how do you feel about the fact that a screenwriter finally figured out how to do this uh, humanely? This is worse than the clock, Phil. I mean, this is really bad. <laughs> what, you know, so you and I, we study international politics, so we're aware of other practices around the world. And as you mentioned, the United States is, is there's just a handful of countries that are still doing this. Much of the world now seems capital punch, punishment is barbaric, as is a, a violation of fundamental human rights, that life is a human right. And you can put somebody in jail for the rest of their life, but but taking their life is is is, is wrong, right? And and I, I find that really compelling. And I will say that is where world opinion has moved short of Saudi Arabia, China, Iran, and a handful of other states where this is still practiced. So I just, when I have 
students from around the world who come take our classes, right? International students, study abroad students. And we talk about this. They're oftentimes shocked that the United States is still putting people to death. Um, and the reality that we we have to do it so barbarically and, and so silly that we can't come up, you can't even come up with a good way because you shouldn't be doing it that way. Um, no, I, I, I am, I lived in for Arkansas for three years and there were a lot of debates going on there because they still uh, practice capital punishment. And, you know, okay, do you go back to firing squads? You know, do you go back to electrocution? Right? It's just the fact that we're having to have these conversations means we're having the wrong conversations, right? And uh, yeah. I am surprised that legally states are continuing to do this because it seems like they're opening up themselves up to all sorts of, of challenges and problems. So I, again, I'm just, I'm sort of left in shock that the United States is still so far behind the rest of the world in these conversations. How, yeah. how about you? I mean, are you, I'm guessing you're also troubled. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a Texas boy. I grew up in Texas. So, yeah. you know, I, I was raised to love the death penalty and I've, I've come around over the years to the opposite. And I've come around uh, because, like you said, because of, of my years as a political scientist. Right. So looking yeah. around the world and looking at this and, and I think, um, you know, you can you can look and, and there there just aren't that many. I mean, of the countries that are left in the world, it's it's largely, you know, South Asia and, and I guess East Africa that largely still still have this uh, legally uh, allowed. And if you look at like the number of people executed. Um, there are a number of states that we don't, like China doesn't publish publicize yeah. the information, so they're almost higher. But of, of countries where we do know the stats, the U.S. is like third in the world in terms of the number of people executed. So, um, it's, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's not great company to be in. I, the, the part that I, I mean, from a, from a social science perspective, I, I think it's not just that we're abnormal. It is, it is that, you know, the other part is that all the, ev almost the research shows that it doesn't have yeah. a uh, deterrent effect either. So the, the whole idea that we're, we're doing this as a deterrent to keep, you know, people will, will not commit murder because they don't want to face the death penalty is, has largely been dis disproven. So really what's left is this kind of uh, retribution, right? It's like that you've done something bad. And so you deserve something bad done to you, which is a very kind of American kind of way of thinking about it as well. So maybe it's really appropriate that a screenwriter has, has come up with this. It's, it's kind of it's classically American, but, but it's also this, it feels like this is the, the death penalty is this, um, perfect kind of, you know, clash. It, it, what makes it so American is, there's this like we believe we're right like we're we're the good guys and what the good guys do is they kill the bad guys right like yeah. it's this very simple worldview yeah. but it comes it's it's what is happening is it's clashing with these like inherent sort of constitutional values that we uphold right so so we can say in two different conversations look, people deserve basic rights, right? This is what the, what the American revolution, all this stuff is based on, right? You have fundamental rights that protect you from the government. One of the things the government shouldn't be able to do to you are cruel and unusual stuff, yes, right? Like right. That, that you should be protected from that. But at the same time, that guy deserves it. Right. And so right. how do like what we're desperately trying to do is reconcile those. Like we, if somebody, we want to believe that somebody deserves this bad thing, but then like we can't come up with a way yeah. to do it. That's not, not a violation of our core principles either. I mean, all of that just comes back around to, boy, we, we just really need to like revisit what we're accomplishing with this. It, it's yeah. yeah. And the fact that we have like approved this new method that's untested, right. And we're just yes. going to try it out on somebody is, is like, it's just unbelievable to me, right. That it's somehow Shocking. it's not cruel and unusual until after you try it and realize right. that it is in fact cruel and unusual. Yeah. Oh, it's, 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 it's really shocking that that's where the debate has ended up and you're right. It's no longer deterrent. And, and I think it also speaks to the degree to which the United States is cut off from the rest of the world, right? We we are we're more insular, we're isolated, we're, we're indifferent. You know, we don't care about how other countries do it. We're not interested in in learning from Europe or other parts of the world yeah. that have moved past this. There's there's a bit of stubbornness to America. I, I see this in my class sometimes. We talk about human rights and we begin with a conversation about what is a human right. And life oftentimes comes up, right? They say life, yeah, this you're. And then I talk about that. Well, what about you know with a death penalty? Well, if you do something really wrong, they should be able to take that away. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it's a human right, you're entitled to that as long as you still are a human and have not transformed right. into a cat or something like that. And they're like, well, ugh. and there's it, we're forced to have this inconsistency yep. between what we believe and then what we practice. It, uh, yeah, it's it's yep. deeply, deeply problematic. 
we like to view the world in simple ways and th- yeah. this sort of stuff doesn't allow us to do it that way right it, it is it's easier to get frustrated at the bureaucracy than to actually like wrestle with the thing we're dealing with and none of that even gets at like the idea of you know ni- whether nitrogen hypoxia is cruel and right. unusual none of it gets to the fact that this guy's been on death row for 36 years right waiting to be killed for 30 30- yeah. that in and of itself is torture right that that's anyway I, but that you know again it, it, it it's the the heart of so much in the legal system, which is where you want to say, but that yeah. guy deserves it, right? I don't care about that guy. But if you start if you start breaking rights down that way, then the the whole the whole thing crumbles out from under you. And and yeah, it's it's if like you're right, you're right. If they are universal rights, they are universal, even sure. for people you don't like and who are terrible. Yeah, and, and we are going to get there. The United States will get there. The question is, how long will it take? Is it another ten yeah. years? Another fifty years? I mean, you've seen a number of states move away from it, and I think that's going to continue. But you know, the Texans and the Alabamans they may hold on a little bit long. Longer, um, before we actually get to this more civilized position of saying that, you know, life is something that shouldn't be taken away. And the fact that we've, we've the United States has put together or put to death innocent people. Right. That, that strikes me that we, we know this without, you know, without any question. It's happened yep. multiple times. And it feels like you get that wrong once you got to stop it. Right. Nope. Uh, we, we made a mistake. We got to try something different. Um, yeah, yeah, I was just going to bring up that it's a flawless system until you threw that into the <laughs> right. into the works. Yes, <laughs> it's never no. botched. It's never wrong. It always oh. and, the, and it's always, uh, you know, you can always revisit it in the future. That's That's right. <laughs> right. All right. Well, on that note, we've probably brought we've brought everybody down. Let's uh, let's wrap it up and tell them they, they should go to the Web page and do some more reading. Right. Yeah. So the politics dot com. And, and the, there's a really interesting article in The Atlantic about this this uh this new form of, of execution. You can read a little bit about it there if you want. Um, uh, the article on, on North Korea from the two experts that we talked about is, is on the webpage. Um, and uh, you can read about the doomsday clock there as well. I don't know if they go into the methodology as extensively as Bill did, but you can, you can read a little bit about their concerns there as well. So um, all of that's available at thepoliticslab.com. Sounds great. All right, Phil. I'll see you next week. Bye, Bill. Bye, Phil. <laughs>